So welcome to episode number eight of season two. Today's interview is a fascinating interview and I found it to be really insightful. I had heard Ruchi Koval about five years ago, as I mentioned in the podcast, and it was very positive and uplifting and really helpful to me personally on my own parenting journey. And today, when I sat down with Ruchi, it was a different kind of conversation. It really was refreshingly honest. See, Ruchi does not try to sugarcoat things or make them better or worse. She shares how she is going through her own personal journey. And we as a society have decided that we have to produce these perfect children to please ourselves, our parents, our families. You know, we don't want to stand out so we conform to what everyone else is doing or more accurately portraying. And the truth is, the real truth is a lot harsher and more messy and less pretty than we are comfortable to admit to. And when things don't go right, and they always don't go 100% right for anyone, for some it is less, less right than others. But the fact is, life isn't neat and perfect and pretty. And Ruchi, in her calm but honest way, spells out a formula for why, and more importantly, what we can do about it. I also noticed that we as parents have this incredible guilt when things don't go right. We blame ourselves or our parenting choices. And can it be that we did everything right, but not everything turned out right? And Ruchi addresses this idea as well in the interview. I want to add that as Jews, we know that there are three partners to the creation and bringing up our children, meaning that the child has three parents, at least spiritually, and that is Hashem, the father and the mother. And what role does he, Hashem, play in this process? Because if we truly believe that he is the third partner in creation, then if we're doing our part, we know that Hashem is orchestrating everything else from above. So why would he challenge us? That's an excellent question. And Lubavitcher Rebbe explains in a sicha in Chelek Lamed in Parshas Vayeshev about how Yaakov wanted to dwell in tranquility. He just wanted shalva as the word. And Hashem shows him how true tranquility is when you have reached your personal maximum potential. This is the truth. Hashem chose certain parents to be unique and special in their role to raise certain special neshamas that journey differently and perhaps even more deeply than others. And I truly believe that these are the children that are going to bring Mashiach. These are the children that are going to be the front line greeting Mashiach. And Ruchi addresses this idea being parents that have a special role. And in this very candid interview, and as they say in pop culture, if you know, you know. So this podcast will be well understood to those who know. So if you're one of those parents who are on a parenting journey with your children, which probably is everyone in some form or another, I invite you to sit down, listen, and be ready to be inspired and be ready to grow. Thanks for listening. Welcome all to another edition of a positive podcast where we work to enhance your life by exposing the tools that we already have inside of us. My podcasts are designed to be short inspirations that will take these proven methods of positive psychology and give you examples and deeper insights on how to practically apply them in your own life. In other of my podcasts, I've shared tips and tools today, as I will do on occasion, I interview someone who can share wisdom and life experiences that essentially do the same thing, teach you that we have the answers inside ourselves.
Today, I have the privilege and honor to be interviewing Ruchi Koval, who is the co-founder and associate director of Congregation JFX, an innovative cure of community in Cleveland, Ohio. She has been a Jewish educator for two decades, leading self-development groups for adults and teens and mentoring educators around the world. Rahi is a certified parenting coach, motivational speaker, musician, author, and mother. She is a trip leader for Momentum, inspiring hundreds of women on their journeys in Israel. And she's also a columnist at Cleveland Jewish News. And her first book, Conversations with God, was released in 2016 with a second book on the way. You can find Rahi on Facebook and Instagram. Her blog is called outoftheorthobox.com and she has podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. So thank you so much, Rahi, for, is it Rahi? Rahi? Am I saying it correctly? It's Rahi. Thank you Ruchi. for asking. Yeah. Rahi. Okay. So Rahi, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Sure. I actually first heard about you some five years ago when a family uh, member of ours shared with us a, I think it was a WhatsApp talk that I had on WhatsApp, or maybe it was a YouTube link. I don't remember. Uh, it was a fascinating share that you gave talk where you discussed your personal journey with your children and their journey in Yiddishkeit. And it was an interesting talk, but at the time, I never thought that it would be such a source of inspiration and strength for me. Um, clearly your radical love approach was years ahead of mine and others and even perhaps years ahead of the experts today. Um, at the time when I heard it, I was actually upstate where I am currently as well now. And I just every time I jog on that route, I actually think of your podcast each time because wow. that's how um, much of an impact it had on me. I remember um, running and crying with tears running down my cheek mm -hmm. as I listened to the things that you shared. Um, and I recently re-listened to it again and it it, it spoke to me again now, five years later. Wow. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you in particular is as I have been interviewing more and more Jewish leaders and professionals, it, it's becoming clear that the challenges we're facing in the Jewish um, from community does not discriminate. Mental health, substance abuse is an epidemic that doesn't discriminate, doesn't discriminate between Hasidish or Litvish or modern Orth or Lubavitch and everything in between and beyond. So, right. you know, as a leader in your economic community, status, yeah, you know, uh, family size, educational levels, it's everywhere. Yeah. So, as a leader in your community, I wanted to hear your thoughts. You know, and um, with that being said, I'm I'm really excited to be able to have this opportunity to sit with you and hear your thoughts. Um, let's begin, if you don't mind if you can please take a few minutes to just give my listeners who for them, this may be the first time hearing, you know, from you hearing your name. Can you take a few minutes to share your general life story and, you know, something about yourself? Sure. So uh, my husband and I were raised in pretty typical, you know, moderate yeshivish homes in the eighties. Um, I was born in 74, I'm 46, my husband's 50. Um, I went to, you know, regular day school Hebrew Academy here in Cleveland. He went to Tells. Uh, eventually, we both ended up in Israel. I was in BJJ. He was in Panovich. And we actually were neighbors on the same street, and we dated in Israel. <laughs> and uh, we got married young. I was 19. He was 22. We had kids right away. Thank God. Healthy, cute, adorable, smart, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
and everything was really going my way, right? I had, you know, got into the school I wanted. I married the first guy I dated. The kids came right away. Our parents were supportive in every way. Uh, we lived in Israel for the first five years. And then my husband decided to become a rabbi. He got a job right away. Like everything just sort of went the way. Smooth, smooth sailing. Smooth sailing. Uh, it's a good thing that I didn't know what was to come. Uh, clearly, Hashem made me a very resilient person. My father passed away when I was six. I'm actually originally from New York. We lived in Queens. And then when my mother got remarried to a man in Cleveland, that's what brought us to Cleveland. Then we ended up moving back to back to my husband's family, my future husband's family. I was only seven years old when we moved on to his block and we, I became his neighbor. And then, you know, clearly I had a certain degree of resilience in coming to Cleveland, being seven years old, having just lost my father. My mother remarried. There was a step stepsister in the picture. And, you know, they together they had three more kids. But it, it's obvious to me now that Hashem gave me the character trait of resilience because I would need it. Um, in 2014, things started to unravel. At that point, we had a daughter in seminary, a son in Long Beach, another son in junior high school, and a, a other kids too. Thank God we have seven kids. Um, in the year 2014, Five of them, five of the seven, started to experience difficulties. Uh, my daughter got kicked out of seminary. My son told a cousin that he was unhappy in yeshiva. My other son was overheard telling a friend in camp that he thinks he's going off the derach. Another child was diagnosed with OCD, and a fifth child was diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Wow. All at once. Yeah. I hope that was the worst year of my life. <laughs> I hope that. I hope, Hashem, please. So, um, you know, it's so interesting because like the kids I was most worried about seven years ago are not the kids I'm most worried about now. So you really just never know what's coming down the pipeline. Um, and I think, although I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, I think sometimes we, um, my friend Batya Rodell sort of taught me this and she's, she's another author and writer and she, she does a lot of work in the Aftadarach community. The, the good kid syndrome where the one that you think is fine and you sort of, you know, put on the back burner because they don't need that immediate urgent attention all the time. And sometimes that's the one who's quietly unraveling yeah. and, and you don't know about it. So not, not to put more guilt on parents who are already overburdened with guilt, um, but just to say that you need so much siyata dishmaya in this journey and, and, you know, you could do everything right. Cause we could go back and say, oh my gosh, you know, we should have done this. We should have let them go to more modern high schools. We shouldn't have sent them away from home. We should have been yeah. more relaxed. We should have put down more boundaries. We should have been more yeshivish. We should have been less yeshivish. We should have given them more money. We should have given them less money. <laughs> you know, yeah. we should have encouraged those friendships. We should have discouraged those friendships. We should have kept our nose out of their friendships. You could literally go back and blame yourself for every single thing. But then... You go and look at other parents who are making all the same mistakes that you made and their kids seem to be squeaking by. So that's all the Yetzirah. But, but like I said, I'm getting ahead of myself. So professionally along this whole journey, my husband decided to become a Kiruv rabbi. We moved to Buffalo Grove, Illinois. We lived there from 1998 to 2000. Then we moved back to Cleveland, which is where we're both from. And we established our own Kiruv show here called JFX, um, which has been very, very exciting. And we've created a beautiful community here, thank God. Um, we're actually closing on a building today. <laughs> today. Oh, Mazel tov. That's so, so exciting. Yeah. Thank you. Thank God. 
Um, I also work for Momentum, which is this organization that, you know, brings Jewish moms to Israel and has all these other educational opportunities, which I love. Um, I'm a speaker, I'm a writer. So like professionally, I am so in my zone. I'm so in my group. I love, 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 thank God what I'm doing. I get to meet the most amazing, inspiring and interesting people. But on the home front, things have been really, really challenging. And for a while, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this, I felt like a fraud. And that was one of the reasons, like I, I've been writing this blog since 2011 out of the orthobox. And like I said, everything unraveled in 2014. I wrote an article for my blog at the end of 2014. It was about one thing. It was about my son on the spectrum. Mm. I couldn't bring myself to write about any of the other stuff. It just felt too big, too shameful, too scary, too private. And I didn't write about that until two years later because there was this voice in my head. And, and there are certain things that should be private. Not everything should be blogged about like right. a separate conversation. But there was this voice in my head that said, who are you to teach other people about Judaism when you can't even keep it together within your own four walls? Hmm. Now I know that that's a lying voice. That is an untrue voice, right? Because yeah. I don't do anything. Hashem is in charge of this universe. But I think a lot of the heaviness that many of us feel comes from that voice. You, you're, you are a mess up. You are a loser. You are getting it all wrong. Everybody else manages to figure it out. Why can't you? Yep. So that's sort of my <laughs> short my life in a nutshell. Yeah. In a nutshell. We're going to get into more details as I ask you some more questions. But that's fascinating. You said that that the four out of your seven children I, I've heard that are, are no longer religious. And I don't know, if, you know, you know, it's interesting off the derech, on the derech. I don't even, that, that part is disappointing and challenging. I'm not taking that away, but like, there's so much, what we know today is that there's so much more going on underneath. That's just a symptom of what's yeah. really happening. So I don't even pay it. I'm like, yes, that's challenging. That's difficult. I'm not, you know, saying it's not, but I'm more focused on what's going on with the mental health challenge underneath it. That's, that's causing it. Um, but the interesting thing that I found so fascinating, though, is even though they're no longer religious, you have a wonderful relationship with the, your children and that your home is a happy home. I've heard you share that idea, too, which is such an important piece. So explain to us, how is this something that you're not only accepting of, but actually it's something that you're happy about? A lot of people will say to me, I've accepted in my heart. Um, I could, or my brain, I can understand it and I know what I need to do, but my heart and brain are not in sync. And I'm curious, what are you doing that's helping you be able to, to be there in that zone? Okay. So first of all, um, one of the four kids who were not religious has become religious again. Um, wow. That's incredible. It is. It's all, it also comes with its own challenges. Yeah. Um, which maybe we'll get into at some point. Um, the intra-sibling relationships are supremely complicated. Yeah. And when I say that everyone gets along in our home is a happy home, I got to be honest with you, that's not always true. Right. That's not always true anymore. Um, one of my children, unfortunately, has fallen prey to addiction. Yeah. And when addiction shows up, um, you know, we very much follow the teachings of Rabbi Shimon Russell. Yeah. Who is a, a rabbi and therapist and, and a parent in the trenches as well. Yeah, I've a, had the honor to interview him recently. Oh, wow. So, yes, yeah. yeah. He's incredible. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so he, you know, he's very into, you know, radical acceptance, radical love. But when it comes to addiction, and even even not with addiction, um, there are certain boundaries that do need to be put into place. And, and this is something newer for us. We were at that time that I gave that speech very much into the radical acceptance. And I think that in some stages and for some kids, that's necessary for sure. When it comes to addiction, you can't radically accept everything. And yeah. we made the decision that we were not going to have any more drugs in this house, which, you know, some experts will say, yes, you should do that. Some experts will say, no, you shouldn't do that. I think that a parent has to consult with the experts that they have, but then integrate it with the wisdom and intuition that's in their own heart. Because nobody knows your kid the way you do. And certain methods and certain approaches are not for everyone at every time. And also back to like the good kid syndrome that I was talking about earlier, um, you really do have to consider how the quote good kids, and I use that term both ironically and nauseatingly, because <laughs> yeah. every, every kid is a good kid, but right. some kids struggle more than others. Um, but you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, some experts will say, well, the, the, the kid who's suffering, the kid who's struggling, that's the kid that you need to pay attention to. That's the kid who's, who's in crisis mode and everybody else has to understand. Right. I've heard Avi Fishoff, um, that's yeah. his method. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very well informed on his method as well. And that is something that I've heard from other parents um, that the other siblings need to be focused on as well. That when we focus on the child in crisis only, we have to still remember that there are other siblings that need just as much and are just as important. Right. So because in our family, four out of the seven kids were in crisis mode, the other kids really were expected to just go along. And in retrospect, I'm not going to say that was a mistake because how much can you expect from one set of parents? But I will say that there was a price to pay for that. And we're paying that price now. Mm-hmm. There's quite a bit of resentment um, from some of two, from some of the siblings. You know, whereas before it was like, oh, we all love each other. We all get along. Now it's like, well, I didn't really feel that way. I was just doing what I thought was the right thing to do. Um, Mm -hmm. One of my kids does not feel close to me right now and is angry at me for some of the boundaries that we've set down. And I I think that's okay. Um, What I'm learning is that that's okay. It's actually normal for teens and young adults to be angry at their parents sometimes. That doesn't mean that anybody's doing anything wrong or that the system is broken. It means that they're chafing against rules that are uncomfortable. And, you know, and, and, and I'll, I'll admit we're, we're evolving in all of this. And, you know, when we first started, our oldest kid was 19 and now she's almost 27. So that's a difference too. A 19 year old is in a different place in the world than a, a young adult who's almost 27. Yeah. Um, and it also depends on where that particular person is in their mental health challenges or crises. So, you know, what should I tell you? Is our home a happy place? Most of the time it is. A- am I a happy person? Most of the time I am. Yeah. But wouldn't you, know? you say that, wouldn't you say that happiness, that this is a myth that we all have, which also we also equate pleasure and happiness, but that's a different topic. But happiness is not always i mean that's not something that can be even possible we wouldn't appreciate it so of course when i say is your home a happy home that doesn't necessarily mean it's not messy and when i say messy that there's fighting and interactions and screaming and loud voices at times i mean that's part of happy i'm saying there are moments of happy moments here and there and that's and that's that's a goal those are those are goals yeah yeah um 
we work very hard to be happy here. Yeah. I like how you say that you work, you work very hard to be happy. And we have to fill up our own tank. My husband and I really, really have to fill up our own tank, paying attention to our own relationship, filling ourselves up with our own ruchnias, doing things that bring us joy, focusing on our own hobbies and our own personhood and our professional accomplishments. These are important. I'm not just a parent. I'm a lot more than a parent. Yeah. That's fascinating. So what is, what would you say, if you don't mind to share with us, what is your general philosophy towards dealing with struggling children? If you would say just overall, what has been your philosophy? My general you... philosophy has definitely been heavily influenced by Avi Fischoff and Rabbi Shimon Russell. Okay. Um, and even though we're not following Avi's methods 100% right now, um, but I would say that 80 to 90% of my interactions with my kids are influenced by his teachings. And I think he has a very significant insight into these kids that many people don't have. And here's what that is. And to some people, this may sound elementary, but to me, it certainly was not elementary. Kids, and by kids, I mean young teens, older teens, and young adults who are acting out are doing so because they are in pain for some reason. And by acting out, I'm putting under that umbrella everything from school issues, truancy, disrespect, breaking the law, breaking halacha, uh, you know, having bad friends, partying, drugs, alcohol, tattoos, piercings, you know, uh, not being able to hold down a job, being financially irresponsible, being provocative and promiscuous. I'm putting all of that under the same umbrella. All those, as you accurately said, are symptoms. What are they symptoms of? They are symptoms of some underlying pain. Why are these people in pain? Often we don't know. Here are some possibilities. Maybe they have mental illness. Maybe they have had undiagnosed learning disabilities or differences that make them feel different or weird. Maybe they have secrets, shameful secrets that they're not comfortable sharing. Perhaps there was abuse, sexual molestation that they perhaps don't even remember or identify. Um, perhaps they were bullied in school, misunderstood by their peers, made to feel that they didn't belong. Maybe it wasn't even an external thing that happened to them, but rather an internal processing that resulted from low self-esteem or insecurity, meaning maybe nobody was actually bullying them, but they felt marginalized socially. Um, perhaps they were shamed for not being from enough in their schools, by their teachers, by their parents. There are a hundred reasons why they are in pain. But here's the thing that, that Avi Fishoff teaches, which I think is 100% spot on. Nobody wants to be a social and religious pariah. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, hey, I think I'll be a deviant and make everybody hate me. That would be fun. So there's, there's a reason. And even if you don't know anything else, that is enough reason for compassion. Yeah. So that's the general philosophy. Addiction comes from pain. Addiction comes from the inability to handle life. So I need to numb my brain so I can handle my life right. or not, or, or not be troubled by the fact that I'm not handling my life. Yeah. This is very true when we see this, um, you know, it, it, it makes us think like so many children are currently struggling in one way or another. And, you know, what can we do? Like, 
a lot of the things that I've, I've heard from Avi Fishup or Shimon Russell or all, you know, many different podcasts that I've done or I've listened to is how to love your child, you know, once you're kind of in a challenge mode, right? Yeah. But do you have any guidance from your experience that before there are any signs of struggle, okay, like you said, the good kids, which I, I agree with you, every child's a good kid, they're a piece of Hashem and they're um, beautiful and good. But are there anything we could, is there anything we can do before there are signs? And then let's say we're starting to see some struggles. Can, how can we do some damage control? Is that even possible? Like a, a you know, question. Yeah. proactively. So I think that to a large degree, our community is living under this fear called OTD. And it's affecting the way people are parenting their kids meaning they're afraid to apply normal chinuch because they're afraid that it'll send their kid OTD. So here's the thing, okay? If you are trying your best to make sure that A, your child is in a school that's appropriate to them, B, their social, emotional, and academic needs are being met, meaning you're not delusional about what they can or can't do. You're not putting them in a school that's above their pay grade because you want them to be where your nieces and nephews are or you know whatever. You're really you know, tuned into what they need, trying your hardest to meet their needs. See, you're not shaming them or embarrassing them or being too heavy handed in a punitive sense. You know, you're not criticizing, you're not, you know, harming your children. You're offering them, you know, food, clothing, shelter, and love. Then you're doing prevention. You can't parent your kid out of fear that they'll go off the derach. And I got to tell you, our youngest child is 11. She's going into sixth grade. Thank God she's a standard kid, you know. And I feel myself being triggered because I have been through this with her older siblings so many times. There's like PTSD where she'll do something and I'll be like, oh my gosh, is this a red flag? Oh my gosh, is this a red flag? Oh my gosh, is this a red flag? It's like you can drive yourself insane with the fear that your kid will go off the air. Here's the good news and the bad news. Unless you're actively abusing your kid and you need to stop, okay, there's nothing you can do to prevent wow. your kid going off the derach. You can't, you can't. Can you just stop replace it. the fear of off the derach? I just want to interrupt you for a second because I don't think that's the only fear. I think that's a, like, like I said, that's the symptom part of it. Like the pain is more that your child is in pain. The pain well, that a parent has. Parents, I think for most parents, it's the fear that they're going to go off the derech. Because I don't think most really? parents know that what's really going on is pain. Like, I remember thinking to myself, my kid was like really not doing well. One of my kids, like not socially, not emotionally, not academically, not psychologically, not socially. But I remember thinking to myself, but 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 they're still hanging on to like Travis and Kosher. Like we're still we're still okay. It's this like delusion. Yeah. That that's somehow an achievement, you know, like, I, I don't know if it's a delusion. I think we, we've been, we've been, um, not brainwashed, but we've been taught that having living a from lifestyle is the recipe for living a happy, healthy, uh, mentally healthy life. So we believe that Chavez is going to make us better people, happier well, people. That's not really true. Uh-huh. So what I'm getting at is, is that it's really a part of what we're thinking about this. Like our right. whole approach to it is that if my child is Shemar Shabbos and keeps kosher, he will be better. He's, he's better. He'll be better, he'll, be, off. he'll be better off mentally. Right. Right. Which is a fallacy. 
So tell tell me about that. Why is that a fallacy? We tell tell me about that. Why do you think that's a fallacy? Okay. This morning, I heard a, a friend of mine giving a class. Her name is Kami Haber. She's a Revitson in Norfolk, Virginia. And she was quoting a mutual mentor of ours, Eliza Bulow. And Eliza Bulow made the following statement. She said that a mitzvah is a physical pathway to a spiritual goal. Right? Yep. Okay. Now, here's the thing. If you're spiritually dead on the inside, okay, and the only reason that you're doing that mitzvah is because you're too ashamed to drop it because you're afraid of everybody making fun of you or being somehow censured or, you know, ostracized from your community. And every time you do that mitzvah, you're filled with loathing. Is it still a physical pathway to a spiritual goal? Now, I will say that there are different schools of thought in this area, right? Um, particularly in Chabad, which I think is, that's the community that you're part yeah. of, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think this is a very, and this is, I believe, the mystical idea that a mitzvah, even if a person has no intent, no knowledge, no awareness, a mitzvah is still a huge accomplishment and should be done. And which, each one stands alone, meaning it doesn't, it doesn't, alone. it doesn't have to connect to what you did previously or afterwards. That moment is connecting you to Hashem. Yes. Um, which is why, you know, Chabad Shalichim will put tefillin on people who don't understand what they're doing because it's, 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 it's giving them a spiritual connection. Now, there are other schools of thought that like, if you don't have the intent and you don't have the meaning, then yeah, I mean, it's better than not doing it, but that the value is not quite that high and whatever, it doesn't matter which school of thought a person ascribes to. My point is that sometimes for these kids who are in so much pain and who are doing these things because they think they have to and because they've been forced to and because they've been, you know, put in this box where everybody has to. And if you don't, if you're not a yeshiva bachar anymore, if you're not a Yaakov girl anymore, then what are you? Every time they do that mitzvah, it's actually taking them further away from Hashem because it gives them so much grief. And I know for sure that one of my daughters felt this way about Sineas. Every time she felt that thing around her neck, she felt like throwing up. And she told me that dressing less sneers helped her rebuild her relationship with Hashem. Wow. So this notion that like, if you're Shomer Shabbos, you're good. That's true for emotionally healthy people with an emotionally healthy relationship with Hashem. Right. Then, yes, Shabbos is going to bring you closer to that goal because it will give you the opportunity to reconnect with Hashem. But for a person who's emotionally unhealthy and who's spiritually unhealthy and who's suffering, the same thing that is one person's medicine is going to be your poison. The same way when a person is physically unwell, the same thing that would make a healthy person feel good will make an unhealthy person throw up. Right. So this is the thing that we don't understand. Sometimes for these kids, letting go, and this is like so revolutionary, I don't know, somebody might turn off the podcast right now, but just like a sick person, their doctor might tell them, might tell them don't fast on Yom Kippur, it's bad for you, and don't try to be more from and fast on Yom Kippur. Your mitzvah right now, because your pikuach nefesh is not to fast on Yom Kippur, sometimes for these kids, it's the releasing of the structures of mitzvahs that literally it's like a reset button with them where they can even start to consider 
what is my relationship with Hashem? Yeah. What, what is all this pain? And they can't do it while they're still in the box. Hmm. That's so, that so resonates with me. I just want to say that I, I'm sure a lot of people are like, I, I don't see how that could be. And they should, you know what? I hope they never have to understand it. Yes. <laughs> people who don't understand, I give them the biggest bracha. Yes. They do never understand what I just said. Yeah. Because if you understand, it means you're living it. And if you're yeah. living it, it means you're crying into your pillow every night. Let's talk about that for a minute. <laughs> crying into the pillow every night. Let's do that. Who's, who's, who's that serving? Who is that helping? But it's a release. We need to have releases. Like we need to let go of it, right? We can't hold on to this. But let me let me just segue into another question. One of the things I've heard you share, if I'm quoting it correctly, and correct me if I'm not, you said, I quote, it is our job to raise our children, not to guarantee outcomes. And that can be a brutal thought, but also at the same time, very comforting yes. because it gives us a focus of what our job actually is. Yeah. And so I wanted to know, what is the source? Like, where, where, what is the source of this idea? Can you expand on this a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so by way of introduction, I was just at a Shabbat Shabbat this past week for a relative of mine. A, a sweet young couple, like they basically each married their first, you know, super adorable, typical yeshivish, blah, blah, blah. Speaker after speaker after speaker said some version of the following. Look how wonderful the Hassan and Kala are. And this doesn't come in a vacuum. Just look at their parents. Look how amazing their parents are. And then you yeah. can see how they turned out so good. And um, my daughter and I, who were, you know, sitting across the table from each other, we had this like little unspoken pact. That every time somebody said that, we would make our little, you know, eye contact and I would be like, <laughs> that's the fallacy. The fallacy is that parenting is a recipe. You put in your, you know, hishtadlos and you send them to the right schools and you give money to tzedakah and you hire the tutors and you, you know, you daven shmona esrei and you cry at candlelighting and then boom, the cake is ready. You take it out of the oven. You have a nice little base Yaakov girl who's ready for Shaduchim. Mazel tov. That's a lie because there's something called Hashem. And Hashem, and this, this was told to me by Rabbi Elia Burdney, whom we spoke to a number of years ago about this. He looked at my husband and me, he was here in Cleveland, his daughter lives here, and we were, you know, sharing some of our struggles and asking him, like, basically, like, what does Hashem want from us? You know, we, we did everything everybody else did. Like, why is our life imploding? And he said, you know, I look at you and you seem like really nice people. <laughs> I'm like, we are, I promise you, we're really nice people. And he says, I want you to know that every now and then Hashem, and some people might not find this comforting. I find it deeply comforting, so I'm sharing it. Every now and then, Hashem has to send an Hashemah out to the world that is going to have a bumpy and complicated journey. And Hashem searches the whole world for parents mm. who are going to be able to give these kids what they need. And he said, for some reason, Hashem chose to give you more than one and more than two of these children because somewhere within you, which you might not see right now, is the strength and the humility to give these kids what they need. You didn't do this to them. Hashem is doing this for you because he loves you and he wants you to grow. 
this fallacy of cause and effect in parenting, this is me speaking now, is so dangerous. It's so dangerous. Where does this shame come from? Should Yitzchak and Rivka walk around ashamed because they had a son called Esav? No, Hashem decided they should have a son called Esav. Should Avraham walk around in shame because he has a son called Yishmael? No, he went to visit Yishmael for the rest of his life. Medrash fills in his ongoing relationship with Yishmael. So should I feel shame that I have children who are not exactly living my lifestyle? Only if I don't believe that Hashem runs the world. That's so powerful. Results not guaranteed. All you have to do is look at the Torah. Look at David HaMelech's children. Look at how Yaakov's children sold their brother into slavery. Yaakov's daughter was raped. I mean, I could go on and on. Righteous people who had complicated stories with their kids. Why do we have this idea in 2021 that we're better than our avos and imahos and that we're supposed to turn out clones? Where did that even come from? Yeah, where does it? Let's talk about that for a minute. Where does, first of all, that resonates with me so deeply, and um, I, it's so it's so comforting. Actually, it's such a comforting thing because, like you said, you hear so many times people will say, um, "Wow, your children! You must be such great parents." And and I actually hear people say, "Like, I really have nothing to do with this." I just want to say, like, I'm not sure where they come from, and like that's those honest people that speak the truth. Um, but you're right. Like, if we believe in Hashem. If, if everything that we're talking about Yiddishkeit is so true, that Hashem runs this world, then who are we to think that we are going to have it easy, that we're going to have children that are just going to be little mini versions of ourselves walking this earth? Right. Rabbi Shimon Russell calls them APKs, autopilot kids. Autopilot kids, you know, the ones that you basically wind up and they kind of go off on their own, you know? I don't I don't have any of those. I don't know what they are. But, <laughs> but those of you that are listening that have them, like, fun. That sounds exciting. Autopilot like, I, I think of my kids who are successful in life and I'm like, I didn't do anything different. Right. I didn't. Right. I gave them the same upbringing. I'm the same person. But I even think even autopilot children at some point have bumps. I mean, that's yes. not, that's not possible. Right. I mean, right. I, I think it's maybe as a little kid, so they don't, they're not doing it at eight. I always say, I say, you know, when my eight-year-old's having tantrums, I say, oh, she's not going to be doing it at 18 because she's doing it now. She's getting it out of her system. Hopefully. Well, no guarantees there either. There's no guarantees either. But I'm saying this version, this idea that it's supposed to be neat and clean. It's like this idea that we're supposed to have a large family and also have a clean kitchen and a clean home. Like no, it's, it's supposed so to be messy. When Messy. kids are little, I feel like there's a lot of support around the messiness of parenting, right? Yes. Everybody's very comfortable sharing, oh, my kid threw up, my kid was up all night, my kid had a dirty diaper, blah, 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 potty training. Because we know that that's totally age appropriate. When the right. kids get older and there are difficulties, um, my kid stole his friend's iPod. My daughter <laughs> downloaded TikTok without telling me. Um, my child is doing cocaine. Oh, no, nobody talks about that. Why? Because somewhere along the way, we decided that little kid problems are normal and big kid problems are our fault. So all of a sudden, there's this blanket of shame that settles on us. Oh, your kid is doing coke? What did you do wrong? And so we don't share with each other. And so we're in this isolation. And it doesn't have to be doing coke. It could be um, 
my kid didn't actually get a diploma because they failed out of their courses. They just got an empty, whatever. It could be even normal people problems. We don't share those. We don't share those. Somehow sure. we've internalized that we must have done something wrong along the way. Right. You know how you can tell who's a good parent? By looking at their choices as a parent. Not by looking at what their kids do or don't do. When I get up to Shemayim after 120 years, Hashem is not going to say to me, why was your daughter an addict? And why was your son dating a guy? That's not what Hashem is going to ask me. Hashem is going to ask me, did you do what you could? Did you make the right choices? Did you respond in the best way that you knew how? Did you stay strong in your amuna? That's all. I'm only responsible <clears throat> for my own choices. I'm not responsible for their choices, but we feel responsible. Yeah. So are you saying also that if we were able to share more, there would be less of the stigma? I, I, I'm curious about that because I think a piece of it is also that it's not always ours to share. It's okay for me to say that my four-year-old had a tantrum last night, was up all night because it's in within the norm. But I'm not going to tell you, God forbid, that you know some you know somebody is not going to say that their ten-year-old you know shoplifted because that's that's that, that sounds really embarrassing. I agree with you. The older your child gets, the more you have to respect their privacy. However, there are small, safe spaces in which those things can and should be shared. Right. I think they do have to be shared much more mindfully and much more carefully and much more tactfully, but they have to be shared because otherwise we all think we're doing this alone. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest piece um, as a positive psychology-based life coach. I, I see that all the time. There's such, and it's specifically in the from community where people think they're the only one that has a child that um, is dealing with anxiety when it's like so, right? it's so rampant right now. I think there isn't anybody who's not anxious or somebody who has, you know, a diagnosis, like you say, of OCD or, or bipolar disorder or, you know, borderline personality. They think they're the only one struggling and they're keeping it a secret from their families and they don't, it's so, it's so hard to carry that burden alone. Yeah. I was thinking one time we took family pictures and I put it on Facebook and I was like, Oh, gorgeous family, blah, blah, blah. And you know, thank God. I love my family very, very much. And we make a pretty picture, but I was thinking, and of course nobody would ever do this in a thousand years, nor should they. Wouldn't it be interesting if I would put like a little caption above each person's head with what they're struggling with right now. Like, not that that defines the person. We're so much more than that. Right. But wouldn't it be funny if like, so we're, thank God, nine people, mother, father, seven kids, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. It's all very cute. This is actually a picture. That's a picture behind me. I don't know if you can see that's us at my son's wedding in our backyard last year. It's a gorgeous little picture. Okay, so what if I could put like a caption? And I'm not necessarily saying in, this is in my family. I'm just saying. So there would be like anxiety, OCD, uh, addiction, uh, ADHD, um, bipolar <laughs> disorder, uh, you know, and like we're putting out this image of perfection. Everyone looks really good and it's but really you don't. important in our society to look really good, but everybody is dealing with stuff. And even we know this, like I'm sure nobody here is saying what everybody's dealing with stuff but we forget that everybody's dealing with stuff because we look at all the matchy-matchy clothing and all the perfectly coiffed hair and all the professionally applied makeup and how everybody shows up to us somehow looking so gorgeous and so perfect and so beautiful. Literally just beneath the surface, it's all roiling. 
Yeah. Well, where did this idea come from? You know, I, I wonder, like, where in Yiddishkeit does it ever talk about being perfect? I mean, Hashem gave the Torah to us as we are not the Malachim because he wanted imperfect human beings to have his Torah. Where did we have this idea that we are supposed to be perfect and we're supposed to raise perfect children and look perfect and have a perfect clean house and have a perfect marriage and post beautiful, perfect pictures? Like, why do we even think this? Well, that's what I'm saying. Look at our Avos and Imahos. Avram and Sarah did not have kids for decades. Then she had him take this other wife, and then he had this kid who was corrupting their kid, and then they sent him out of the house. You know, you look at Rivka. Do you know that when Rivka died, almost nobody was at her funeral. Her non-Jewish friends buried her because she was afraid. She didn't. Yaakov was was away because he had to run away from Asaph. He she didn't want Asaph to come to the funeral because she was afraid that people would speak hatefully about her at her own funeral because of how Asaph turned out. And Asaph was so angry at her that she helped Yaakov steal the brachos. This is not, this perfectionism is not Torah. It's culture. It's from culture. I'll tell you where I think it came from. I think it came from this idea that like, you know, we are royalty. And we are this Am HaNivchar. And we are a Mamleches Kohanim and a Gai Kadosh. And that we have to present ourselves in a certain way. And yes, there's totally a place for that. You don't know, no, don't go out looking like a shmata. You have dignity. You're a ben Torah. You're a bas Yisrael. But I think that that whole concept has sort of crept into a very unhealthy extreme where what we look like has become far more important with what we, how we are actually doing. And when the external becomes more important than the internal, that's where things go awry. And that, that's where things get super messed up. This is, you know, why eating disorders get covered over and cutting and other addicted, addictive behaviors because we're like, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't look good. It won't look good for shidduchim. It won't look good on the resume, it, you know, and that I'm not saying that it's not important to look good, but looking good can never be more important than being good. Yeah. And somehow we've decided that that's like a big part of Yiddishkeit when I'm not sure I've seen any proof of that anywhere I also think that's also like our trauma like also the piece about you know Kiddush Hashem and we should come out there and look you know like you mentioned um that we're so wired to always even if it's not true make it look good make it look good make it look good that that spills over into other areas of our life at the same time yeah and that's like you were saying before about crying into your pillow like how many times have I had like the most awful, disgusting, rotten day full of bad news and depressing events? And then there'll be some sort of simcha. So I don't do this anymore. But what I used to do is wash your face, put on your makeup, go out there and smile. Hi. Oh, hi, Ruchi. How's everything? Baruch Hashem. Good. Um, how about Baruch Hashem? Terrible. How about my life is falling apart? You know, my kid is crumbling before my eyes. But we do this. We put on our pretty face now. Well, I think people don't really want to hear always. So you have to, it depends who's, who's asking the question, right? Well, now I don't even go. Like when I'm having a day like that, I am, I give myself a lot of grace and I say, I don't have to pretend that everything is fine when it isn't. And I just don't go and I'll call the next day and I'll be like, oh, Mazel Tov, I heard your daughter got engaged. It's so nice. I'm sorry. I couldn't come last night. That's it. It's a 30 second phone call. That's what I can handle because the effort to look good when you're not doing good takes its toll it's exhausting really it's emotionally draining and And it's not necessary no you need that energy for other things yeah that's a great segment to my next question 
so what do you do, Ruchi, when you start feeling like, like you said, having a hard day or you're feeling, you know, bad for yourself or why me or those dark moments when you just want to sit in your bed and lick your wounds and feel sorry for yourself. Like you said, like, you know, everyone's struggling with things. Yes. But like, it seems to me that I'm just been chosen for this greatness here. And I know that growth is not linear and it's all over the place and it's really messy. But what, what, like, what would you say to somebody who's struggling right now? I have an expression that I've made up. It's called pits, P-I-T-S. It means punch in the stomach. So every now and then when I'm having a day like that, I call it a pits day. It's a pits day. It's a punch in the stomach day. It's like when I just, something bad happens, I get bad news. I have to have a really difficult conversation. Something emotionally exhausting happens. And I say to myself, oh, it's a pits day. Okay. Here's what happens on a pits day. Number one, I take everything non-essential off my calendar, whether it's cleaning the house, cooking a meal, visiting somebody, anything that I can cancel, I cancel. Number two, I make sure to do something very kind for myself, whether it's buying myself a treat, you know, retail therapy, um, just going to take a nap, um, whatever. I, I do something nice for myself on that day. And like I said, I just give myself a lot of grace. I go to sleep early and I hope that I'll feel better in the morning. Usually, like I said, Hashem made me a pretty resilient person. My default mode is to be happy and in a good mood. So Baruch Hashem for that. Um, usually a pit's day, only the feeling only lasts for a day or two, sometimes more, sometimes three or four. That's like in an extreme situation. And I just have to remind myself, you will not always feel this bad. You will bounce back from this. It feels like you won't, but remember how many times you did, you know, and I don't, I don't have to answer my phone. I don't have to answer my emails. I don't have to do anything because I am caring for my own neshama and I am protecting my own heart. And that's the most important thing that I can do. That's on a pit stay. In general, what do I do? I have a circle of close friends that I confide in, uh, in the good moments and the bad. So I have a release. Um, I do attend Al-Anon meetings to help me with the addiction issue. That's a support group for families and friends of addicts. Um, I love to read. I, um, I'm on a Nishmas group every morning on Zoom. So I start my day with, with Ruchnias. Um, I have different like mini shiurim that I listen to throughout the day, like different videos or WhatsApp messages that I get. And I try to like, you know, keep myself centered and grounded. I teach classes. That's what I do. Uh, on Musser, so I fill myself up with my own Torah, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I I really take refuge in my friends and family, and we we joke about our problems, we laugh about our problems. When I feel like crying, I cry. I'm very emotionally in tune, and I I'm very very open, as you can tell. Yeah. No secrets, no shame. Um, this is not my problem. This is a Qualius role problem. Um, and so I don't internalize the responsibility of what happened to me and that's how I cope. That sounds like a recipe for success. And I'm sure a lot of people listening will find that to be helpful. What would you, um, if you can go back to 2014 or to that rookie, however old you were then, what would you tell yourself at that? What would you, what do you, what do you wish that you would have known back then that you know now? (sighs) I think the main thing I would like to tell myself is you're going to be okay. You're going to wow. survive this and you're going to actually like yourself better 
for who you've become along the way. I think that would be my main message because I think in those years, and I see this with parents who are like new to this, you're such a deer in the headlights and you're like, oh my goodness, this is really happening. How could this be happening? It's like, it's such a crisis and, and you don't think you're gonna survive it. But I don't even know if I would have believed myself that that's, right. what I, that's what I would want myself to know. You're going to be okay, and you're going to come out a better person because of it. Wow. That resonates with me deeply. One one parting question. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of young parents that have been listening to my podcast lately, and I hear from them. They have you know little children, and they'll say to me, you know, I'm so scared. I feel you know I feel like I'm parenting out of fear now. I know what's out there. Like when we were parenting, I, this information wasn't out there. We didn't see this many children going off the derech or this many people struggling with mental health or addiction. It wasn't spoken about as much maybe. And it's not, it wasn't as big of a problem. And these younger parents are like, wait, I, what do I need to know? What do I need to know so that I, I don't want to say can avoid that. Cause like we said, Hashem is running the world. We don't get to choose these things. But what would you tell them that could be inspiring and uplifting to them going forward? Great question. Um, I think I would say two things. Thing number one is try to fill your home with as much simcha as possible. Try to be a happy person. Do whatever it takes to fill up your tank and just try to let that simcha overflow to your kids. The more simcha there is in your home, the more connected the kids will feel to the values of your home. The more simcha you exude and radiate, the more your kids will want to be around you and hang out with you. And the more that relationship, that parental relationship will be an influential part of their lives. Number two, don't pressure yourself to always be happy. <laughs> this sounds like the opposite of what I just said, but it's not. Totally. You cannot prevent this. You are not solely responsible for how your kids turn out. You could fill your home with simcha and stuff could still happen. Do we have any idea what's ahead physically, financially? Look how this epidemic came out of nowhere and changed everybody's lives. If there's one thing that we need to learn, it's that we can't control the outcome, like we've been saying this whole hour. So I feel like today's young parents put this inordinate amount of pressure on themselves. And it comes from this 24-7 access to technology. We didn't have all these podcasts. All we had were parenting books, okay? And you could either read them or not read them. Now, podcasts, videos, YouTube, social media, like there's literally, if we had a thousand voices telling us what to do, today's young parents have a billion voices telling yeah. them what to do. And then there's, you know, looking at stuff on social media. Oh, those kids look so cute. Oh, those kids, oh, they look so happy. Oh, that couple can afford to go on vacation. Like it can, it, it, so just relieve yourself of that pressure and say, I can only do what I can do and everything else is in Hashem's hands. And really just the davening, you know, and even the davening, of course we should daven. Everybody knows that. I don't I remember if it was the Stipler or the Chazonish or whoever said the Chafetz Chaim. I don't remember who said that Siyat with your kids is whatever percentage, you know, tefillah and the tears of the mother. Even that, you could drive yourself crazy by saying, I'm not davening enough, I'm not davening enough. You know, when I go to light Shabbos candles, especially like if I'm at a simcha or something where like my relatives are there and, and you know, some of my relatives are very holy and every time they light candles, they're crying, crying, crying. I don't cry when I light candles. You know why? Because mm -hmm. I would never stop 
I wouldn't stop. And I don't let myself go there every Friday night. You know why? Because I don't want every Friday night to be a cry fest. So I cry when I have to cry. But like even davening, there's a point at which you have to tell yourself it's good enough davening. Hashem understands, you know, a short davening can be just as powerful as a long one. And if I choose to keep my tears private, that's between me and God. So yes, fill your house with simcha. Yes, daven and keep your marital relationship strong. This is another thing I really want to tell young parents. You can get so consumed with the kids that the marital relationship takes second fiddle because you say to yourself, well, my kids need me so badly. My husband's a grown up or my wife is a grown up. Do not make that mistake. The biggest, biggest gift you can do for your kids, and not everybody has this luxury, I understand. But whatever is in your power to keep your marriage strong, do it. And then, like I said, just don't put so much pressure on yourself. I love that. Do everything. That's that's a great um, way to end this podcast. I think that's a very powerful message. Um, and I, like you said earlier, fill your cup take care of you, um, do things that give you meaning and purpose. Yes, parenting does that for us. Yes, being a mother does it, but there are other things that we need to do to take care of ourselves. This is for fathers as well as mothers to really fill our own cup. Yeah. And I think the main piece that I'm taking away from our conversation is that if we truly believe in Hashem, if everything we've been taught about Yiddishkeit is true, that what we believe in, because we're living it, we want to have from children, right? We want that. Then everything, this is from Hashem too. And this too has good in it. Even if we can't see it today, even if we don't feel it today, but we know that it's from Hashem and ultimately there's good in it. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Very well summarized. And we have to remember that. Well, I want to thank you for your time, Rochi. This was quite um insightful and a wonderful conversation with you so i thank you for giving me the time thank i wish you continued hatzlacha in all of your teaching and that you should have continued nachas because you're on the journey we're not beginning and end this is a process a life process and it's ever changing yeah so may we have much much nachas and may we ultimately um, be taken out of galas well. and and have mashiach come and really bring ultimate peace to the world because we need mashiach more than ever than we've ever needed it before absolutely thank you Thank you.